Hello and welcome to a Mighty Blaze podcast, season five. I'm your host, Trisha Blanchett. A Mighty Blaze was created in 2020 to connect readers and writers during the COVID pandemic and has since developed into an online hotspot for book news, festival broadcasts, and interviews with wonderful writers like the one we've got for you today. Best-selling author Oliver Berkman calls his latest release a book about the power of embracing your limitations. I'm all for that. 4,000 Weeks Time Management for Mortals is a sardonic, anti-self-help, self-help book, a surprisingly practical guide to making the most of the limited time we have on the planet. And by that, the author doesn't mean that we should try to do more, more, more. Instead, he argues, we should focus on the many things we can easily, happily neglect. Oliver, who was also the best-selling author of The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking, visited the Thoughtful Bro Show to talk with host Mark Cecil about this new way of approaching our day-to-day lives, including the mind-bending idea of the infinite ladder, learning to let go of what he calls middling priorities, and finally facing down our productivity demons by truly embracing our limitations. So settle in and make the very best use of your time by enjoying this fascinating conversation as I pass the blaze torch to Mark and his insightful, efficient guest, Oliver Berkman. Welcome everybody to The Thoughtful Bro. We are live streaming here on Tuesday at two as usual on A Mighty Blaze on both our Facebook and YouTube pages. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We're here as usual to talk about what makes great books tick and what makes great authors tick. Um, Just a few words before we get started. A Mighty Blaze is an all volunteer initiative to help writers reach readers during a time of COVID and beyond. Uh, We wish it was beyond already, but it seems COVID will be with us a little bit longer. Um, At Mighty Blaze, we're not asking for any money. Of course, we are an all-volunteer initiative, and we are just looking for you to like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, and so you can connect with your favorite authors. Um, If you really want to support us, you can subscribe to our newsletter on our website. We won't spam you. We just give you one email every Sunday that says what author interviews we have coming up this week. Um, If you are, in fact, in the mood to spend some money, please spend it on books that are brilliant and clear, full of practical advice and timeless wisdom. Books like 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals by Oliver Berkman. Um, We will have time for audience questions, of course. Uh, At the end, please pop them into the comment section on YouTube or Facebook, and they'll make their way to me. Um, We've got some amazing guests coming up uh, in the next few weeks. more nonfiction than I, than I usually do. But next week, we'll have Jess McHugh. Um, she's going to talk about her uh, work of nonfiction called American Um, It explores American culture through our 13 all-time best-selling books uh, here in the United States. Um, that would include Ben Franklin's Autobiography, Webster's Dictionary, and Betty Crocker's Picture Cookbook. Um, by kind of deconstructing these works and figuring out uh, what they're all about, we get a interesting angle onto who we are as a culture. Um, we also have some other cool guests coming up. Um, uh, retired Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, who is one of the chief um, 
witnesses in the first Trump impeachment trial. Um, he will be on on September 21st to talk about his new memoir. Um, and then we'll have literary fiction legend T.C. Boyle on the show on October 5th. So a lot of great stuff coming up. Um, so, but that is for later. On to this week. Oliver Berkman is the author of The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking and Help, How to Become a Slightly Happier, How to Become Slightly Happier and Get a Bit More Done. Um, he's also the author of the column The Imperfectionist, which is an email on productivity, mortality, and the power of limits, as well as building a meaningful life in an age of bewilderment. Um, his latest book, which is already a New York Times bestseller, um, is called 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. It's about making the most of our radically finite lives in a world of impossible demands and relentless distraction. Um, Mark Manson, who is the author of the perennial bestseller, The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F, um, said this about the book, 4,000 Weeks is a much needed reality check on our culture's crazy assumptions around work, productivity, and leading, living a meaningful life. Oliver, welcome to The Thoughtful Bro. Thanks very much for the invitation. It's good to be here. Great, great. So um, I really enjoyed the book. I uh, also enjoy, um, I was saying this to you in the green room moments ago, I enjoy um, some of your lectures. You did a great TED Talk on this topic. I'd recommend anybody to just go check out that TED Talk as a companion um, to this book. Um, for this interview, um, we're going to be talking about a few things. First, um, how did we get this way as a culture that we have a very um, kind of inescapable, but somehow backwards, somewhat wrongheaded view of how to spend our time and if time can even be spent at all. Um, and we'll also talk about some of the like, deeper paradoxes of um, trying to think about and use and exploit time, um, what that really means and how in some ways it's kind of an absurd um, absurd way of looking at time to begin with. And then we'll also fit in some practical help, some kind of pointers about how you can have a more healthy and authentic relationship to time. Um, so we got all that coming up in the next 40 minutes or so. Um, but Oliver, I guess to start off, one thing I'm kind of curious about is like your position in um, the market of um, kind of self-help, self-improvement. I think self-transformation is one of the ways that it's this, this category is called now. Um, but you are sort of in this kind of anti-self-help, self-help movement. It's, you know, you, as I mentioned earlier, you have this book called Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. Certainly Mark Manson has sold millions upon millions of books he has, um, yeah. yeah, with this very notion that like, I'm just going to tell you that, I mean, I, th I think his second book is called like, everything is fucked a story of hope or something. I mean, that sort of encapsulates a lot of this. And I feel that you're um, sort of in the same category. I mean, first, is that fair? And why? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a flattering company to be in. I think, you know, I, I don't, as always, you know, I don't feel like I chose it very in a very calculated way. I wrote for many years, I wrote this column for the Guardian, which had the title, this column will change your life, which was about all this stuff. And it was, you know, it was meant to be a sardonic title. Uh, as I found myself explaining to people the whole time I was writing it, that this was, uh, that this was a joke. Um, and, you know, part of that was mocking terrible self-help, but it quickly became apparent to me that the other part of it that was in many ways more valuable was finding what, what was, useful and interesting there and was perhaps marketed in a way and packaged in a way that it that it, tons of people missed out on it. So the most obvious distinction here in the books you mentioned versus classical self-help is that classical self-help is at least in the last few decades has been traditionally aimed at a 
audience of women. And on some level, I think Mark Manson's books and others like that are aimed more at an audience of, of men. Um, I don't think of myself as writing for an audience of either men or women, but but I think, you know, that that's part of what's going on there. There's also a kind of uh, resistance to uh, kind of new agery um, that sort of pushes back against things like the law of attraction and all that stuff. But I think what really it comes down to is that there is value here and these topics matter. And the fact that some, some you know, when I, one thing I found quickly writing for The Guardian was that the most interesting job to do was not to sort of point and laugh at terrible self-help books, but to encourage people who cared about these issues because who doesn't care about being a bit happier and handling their emotions a bit better and all the rest of it, right. um, uh, th that they could still engage with this material without feeling like weirdly embarrassed or something. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I, I've come on a journey, really, but it's much more towards thinking that this stuff is not to be mocked. It's, you know, that you don't have to buy every claim made by a self-help guru, but. Well, I mean, I, I think to kind of boil down, I hadn't quite thought yet of um, this idea that it might be gendered, this relation, this uh, kind of resistance to self-help and that, you know, to use a cliche, men have trouble asking for help and mm -hmm. they don't want to be associated with somebody or a brand that needs someone who needs help. Um, and so personal transformation is a great way um, to pitch that. And then I also agree that... Um, having a more rational approach or something that is like willing to dismiss some of the more far-fetched claims of the secret and so on. I can see that how that would be appealing. But um, I find that like a lot of the great poetry in your work, if I may call it poetry, is um, kind of related to um, embracing the darker aspects of life. You have this great line where something along the lines of, only when you admit the darkest aspects of our existence can you enter a truly authentic relationship with your own life. And then you quote a priest as saying that this kind of admitting some of the darker facts about life, you enter this state of bright sadness. I thought that was oh, a, yeah. a wonderful phrase. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a pattern that runs through, I think it runs through my books, but I think it runs through a lot of other books, sort of contemporary books, but also back to like the original Stoic philosophers and the whole and Buddhism and all the kinds of life philosophies that are sort of newly, newly popular today, <clears throat> which is this understanding that you know, you, you can try to, you can try to sort of squelch your emotions if you really want to, but but you're going to squelch all the good ones and the bad ones, and yeah. you, you can't pick and choose like that, and you can't exert the kind of control over your mental life that would enable you to sort of be full of cheerful thoughts all the time and never have to tolerate a negative one and you know then it even passes through into the sort of focus on resilience as opposed to uh kind of well the the, the idea that like becoming more resilient in the presence of negative emotions is, is is more important than sort of curating your emotions so that there aren't um those and i think you can see that um just to pick two very popular authors at radical different ends of the continuum of books here. I think that focus is something that is in like the work of Brene Brown mm -hmm. and Jordan Peterson as well, mm -hmm. you know, different audiences, different styles, but it's this, the same sort of turning towards difficult stuff instead of right. trying to come up with structures to mean you never have to confront it. Right. Yeah. Great. So let's talk a little bit about how we got here as a culture. Um, just uh, a lot of um, what has been praised about your work uh, or this book in particular that I've seen is the way that it um, is filled with kind of your own your own personal anecdotes about your own life, but also a sort of like 
history of psychological and philosophical thinking in Western culture about our relationship to time. And, you know, without going into all that here, just give me like the 30 second version of how we got here into this um, state of exploiting time. Just one one insight that I loved in the book was um, you said one way to think about capitalism is it wants to instrumentalize everything it touches. It wants to make an instrument out of nature, out of ourselves, out of each other. Um, and time too is something that it seeks to make use of. And it's a way of thinking, I have to say, Oliver, that I find inescapable. I even, you know, the idea of like relaxing for a little while or not thinking about time mm -hmm. is in itself a way I see of using time so I can be more relaxed. I mean, yep. it's just inescapable to me. How did we get here? Well, I mean, yeah. And I mean, you touch on one other very important point, which is I hope I'm not writing in this book from the perspective <laughs> of someone who thinks they've sort of worked this all out. It's much more a kind of uh, figuring it out together kind of stance, I hope, because I am not perfect at any of this. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, just on a broad historical um, sweep, it's far less simple than I'm about to make it sound. But basically, you know, in the pre-industrialized world, in I, I use the example of English medieval peasants, but I think uh, you could look at lots of different cultures. Um, I think there's good reason to believe that they wouldn't have thought about time as something that you could use in the first place, right? They wouldn't have thought of it as somehow separate from themselves um, the way that we do. You know, if someone asks me whether I've got time to add another thing to my list of things to do tomorrow, I imagine my calendar it pops into my mind. Or maybe you have a clock face or a little, like a little yardstick or something. We visualize time as something separate from us and then we sort of find ourselves trying to use it well or feeling bad about wasting it or, or whatever the case may be. In cultures that... Um, are um, what anthropologists call task have task orientation as their as their approach to time. You don't even get to that point of thinking that time is separate from you and therefore something that sort of hounds you. You got to use squeeze things into. It's just like time is the medium in which your life unfolds. Um, and the it would be a it, task like the harvest is a task. That right. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the harvest is a great example. If you went to if you went as a productivity guru to a, a medieval farmer or indeed to some extent a modern day farmer and said like how about we do like you know all the next five years harvests in the next month to get them out of the way because you know you've got to batch your tasks i'm always reading in um in productivity books well obviously that's ridiculous uh because because a farmer in that respect is just sort of yoked to time in a way that you can't possibly control right. no one tries to control it you can do all sorts of useful and meaningful things in that life, but, but you're not, but not through trying to dominate time. And I think what naturally happens after we sort of um, disidentify from time, invention of the clock, industrialization requires mass coordination of people and, and, and machinery, um, is that you start thinking that it's something to be controlled and dominated and that you might get on top of it in the same mm. way that like, an iron magnate might be completely on top of the iron industry set for some area. But just time doesn't, doesn't respond properly to this. When you try to control something that, in fact, you don't have in that way, you don't possess it, you just get a moment at a time, you're sort of constantly running up. Your attempt to control is constantly running up against reality. Um, I think of it as sort of like gears slipping or something. You know, it's like it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't connect. Right, uh, right. And would you say that um, one of the things that sort of struck me about this book is that 
um, bear with me if you will, or humor me on this. Um, mm -hmm. It seemed like in a way, a kind of tale of a, a, a preacher who had left the faith. You know, and in, in the sense that you, your, your self-described productivity geek, you, in fact, to this to this day, write a very kind of influential, popular column about productivity. But but this book is sort of about a kind of collapse of that faith or at least a kind of modulation of it. It's a, it's a collapse of like a complete faith in it. And so you still love some of this faith, but you found that like the prom the, the seeming promises of the religion of productivity, so to speak, um, are ultimately empty, and you had to kind of scale back in your hopes. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a great way of putting it. I hadn't fully thought of it in those terms, but I totally think it is. It's about, um, who am I quoting? Is it Auden? About letting your illusions die? You know, this is about like a process of seeing, of realizing that, yeah, certain things were illusions and that it would be painful to let them die, but that it would be best to let them die. Um, it was a question of seeing what I was trying to get out of productivity stuff. And in many cases, I think being led on by, by productivity gurus, which was this sense of total control invulnerability to events invulnerability to emotions, whatever. Um, that doesn't mean, of course, that a given productivity technique can't be brought into one's life after that you've seen through those illusions, you know, for some much more sort of down to earth reason, right? It's right. fine to schedule your day. It's not useful to schedule your day. if It's part of a project to sort of get out of reality somehow. Um, just quickly, the other thing that that fascinates me about you're describing it in those sort of religious terms is that um, I saw yesterday a really fascinating, very generous, but ultimately critical review of the book from a by a Christian theologian i saw that too yeah it's just a fascinating sort of saying like okay if we were mere mortals this book would be absolutely spot on and i still really like it but i'm a christian and i don't think we are mere mortals so now i don't know whether he's talking exactly about like eternal life in the in a sort of um uh extension of the timeline kind of way i don't think that's the only way to understand that but it did really make me think like oh my goodness am i like just like between faiths here am i going to look back on this book as the thing that i wrote like after losing my productivity religion but before some kind of massive conversion experience in christianity <laughs> or something could be could be um, that 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 review was one of those the highest compliment i can pay to religious writing is that it sort of made me wish i could believe mm. those things personally i can't and it would be intellectually dishonest of me to have pretended otherwise in this book but like so so it's fascinating in that respect because there is it is to do with what you have faith in here and i guess that you know we're talking about trying to be the sort of little god of your own time in a way, in a way that is not um, open to us humans. I just think because it's not possible. Others might think because the role of God is that that job is already taken, you know? So um, yeah. I, I, it's a fascinating intersection there. I found that, that, that review to be fascinating as well, just in the sense that it was a completely of two minds. It was like both acknowledging that we're mortals and if, and if we are mortals, then this is great advice but actually we're not mortals. And so it's irrelevant advice, but it sort of like made both cases in, in one, in one review. So I thought, yeah. I, I thought it was very interesting, but you know, further on this idea of you having lost your faith as it were, um, one of the most striking images. And it, it, to me, this metaphor that you present in the book is like almost a Zen con it to me. It's like, it. 
I find it so fascinating. I am even now in this very moment lacking words to describe the effect that it has on me. But okay. I would, uh, so I would just describe this metaphor. Um, and it seems that, I mean, it is the kind of metaphor that can like totally torpedo one's faith in kind of pure productivity or 100% efficiency. And it is this idea of the infinite ladder. And, um, you know, and rather than me describing it, can you just describe this idea of time management relative to how, you know, we are sort of in a way on an infinite ladder? Explain that for us. Yeah, I mean, this is in the part of the book where I'm trying to explain that um, becoming more efficient in and of itself is not helpful to a person. It can be if it's sort of um, yoked, if it's sort of yoked to some value that you want. To, uh, I'm not suggesting that, you know, uh, it doesn't make sense to sort of speed up the time it takes you to put the trash out or something. It's like, that's fine. But, but, but efficiency as a value is sort of is empty in this very interesting way, which is that if you make a system more efficient and do nothing else, all else being equal, you'll just attract more inputs to that system and probably um, uh, less meaningful inputs. So a, a loose parallel, although it doesn't work with the meaningful part, is, is that you know whenever they try to ease traffic congestion by adding a lane to a freeway, you find that more drivers are incentivized to use the freeway so it gets busier and the congestion returns to the comes back to the to as bad as it was. If you get really good at answering your email, the main thing that's going to happen is you're going to get more email because you reply to emails and then people reply to your replies. You get a reputation for being good at answering emails, so more people keep emailing you. Um, the reward for, as various people have said, you know, the reward for good time management is, is, is more work. And so I sort of liken it to an infinite ladder just because you are getting better at something when you do that, which is uh, equivalent to climbing up a ladder. Um, but because the ladder is infinite, because there is effectively no limit to the number of um, new inputs that could come, and they could be good things as well. I don't just mean like tedious demands from your boss. It could be business ventures you want to start or, or um, exotic locales on your bucket list. You know, because they are effectively infinite for us humans, um, getting better at getting through some of them faster does not get you closer to uh, a sort of a summit. Um, or the top of the ladder. It just gets you um, faster and faster and you feel more rushed. Um, but you never get to this to this place because it's not in the nature of what you're getting through that you'll ever get through it. So, In other words, like the preacher says in Ecclesiastes, all is vanity. I mean, no matter how, no matter how much you accomplish, it's all just sort of dust in the wind. Um, but I mean, but so let's just say we acknowledge that, that the ladder is infinite. Um, I want to put you on the spot here and just sort of answer, like admitting that that is true, what, what, what is the answer to how we should behave? And I thought it's, it's just a totally kind of strange and complex um, kind of answer in a way, but in other ways, it's more simple. I mean, I think if you just, you admit that all achievement is ultimately an infinite ladder and so therefore futile. Um, I think this Carl Jung quote that you have in the book about, well, just do the next most necessary thing. Yeah. That seemed to be about the best answer I found in the book to kind of think about what rate should I climb the ladder? Well, if you do the if you just look around and find what's necessary and do that thing, your life will always have meaning. Is, is that the best yeah, answer I'm, or what I'm is the sure answer? I'm not sure I totally agree that like all accomplishment is, is like climbing up an infinite ladder. I, yeah. I'd have to think about that. I'm still talking about sort of rendering your accomplishments more efficient. In other words, right. doing, fitting more things into the same amount of time. But it might be that that kind of conclusion is, is lurking there too. <clears throat> yeah, I think that the stance I'm trying to talk about here 
I tried to get at right at the beginning of the book, is it's sort of a question of giving up hope, accepting defeat, surrendering, but as a first step. So what mm -hmm. you surrender and what you the defeat you accept is that um, you're never going to get to the top of this ladder, which means you know you're never going to clear the decks. You're never going to feel like you you're never dropping a ball, never disappointing anybody, fulfilling all your ambitions and all your families, um, all, all the things they want, your parents' ambitions for you. Like you're never going to get on top of all of that. So you can let that go. That ship has sailed. Whatever other metaphor and idiom you want to use, right? It's like this is this is not something to try to do. And having given up that impossible quest, at least a bit, I'm not claiming again that I sort of have managed to surrender completely, but like having given up that impossible quest at least a bit, that's the extent to which you then have time and energy and motivation to spend today doing some things that, um, that, that matter, that count. Um, and it requires this ability to withstand the discomfort of knowing that you are not going to get to the top of the ladder that you won't right. end today with necessarily fewer emails in your inbox than you started it with and and sort of letting that all go and then deciding what to do and absolutely um answering a bunch of emails is going to be part of that for most people in the modern world i'm not saying like walk away from your email i realize people can't just sort of necessarily up and leave but no longer to use something like inbox clearing as part of this psychological journey towards an imaginary omnipotent control right right okay so we, we have a bunch of questions coming in from the audience we will get them we'll get to them at the end but um and folks I, I'm, I'm gonna do one more sort of semi-philosophical question and we will get to practical um kind of bits of advice at the end because i know that's what everybody wants but i am sort of a um, I love these kind of philosophical kind of unanswerable conundrums, but um, one more that came up in the book about how we look at time, which is just so fascinating, is this idea that like you're, you sort of advise people against um, thinking of time as only something valuable in um, creating a more optimal future. Mm -hmm. and, and this comes this this comes to bear on all aspects of life. For example, being a good parent. The mm -hmm. only way to be a good, the only way like measuring stick of being a good parent is will it make your child a good adult, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's always just thinking about the thing we do today is good in, only insofar as it creates a better tomorrow. But mm -hmm. the paradox of that, of course, is that tomorrow is made up of further present moments. And then we mm -hmm. come to the next present moment. And in the present moment that we thought we would be arriving at to be happy because of the work we did yesterday, yeah. we're now <laughs> using that present moment again to think of the next future. And so present moments always involve um, an element of thinking about the future. Now, the, the answer to that is this kind of be here now, be in the moment kind of thinking, which is sort of never quite made sense to me. Um, because again, as I said, sort of at the top of the conversation, you, you get caught in the moment and you think, well, I'm just going to meditate right now and be in this moment, but I'm only doing that. So I'll like feel more relaxed later and be yeah. able to attack, attack my work this evening in a better way. Yeah. To boil it all down, Oliver, um, I guess the question is, is it even possible to just take time for what it is in this moment? Or will time always involve some element of thinking of the future? It's such a good way of phrasing the question. I mean, um, so firstly, yeah, I, firstly, you would not want, I don't think, to, to pay no attention to the instrumental role of time. Even if you, even if it were possible, um, that is a person who can't, you know, 
load the dishwasher because the only reason we do that is to, from, unless there's any sort of strange people out there who really enjoy loading the dishwasher, the point <laughs> of that is to get to an end point. I wouldn't have written this book if I didn't have an interest in the book being completed. Um, it's the it's the sense of over invest. It's a sense of investing in that to the exclusion of everything else that I think is the the right. the um, the issue there. And yeah, I mean, I the way I think about this is it's a sort of a loosening of your grip on time when it comes to using it well. This maybe is just going to collapse into a sort of a vague metaphor instead of anything more precise. But like, it is. Um, for me, it's not about like, oh, I've got to try to be in the moment because as I write in the book, that just makes you really self-conscious about whether you're in the moment and right. stressful as the alternative. But when you sort of internalize, starting with the intellectual insight that like you always are actually only in this moment and there is nowhere else to go and any value that you encounter in your life is going to be encountered in one of these present moments. If you let that sort of permeate you uh, a bit, um, you can sort of unclench, I think, is the, is, is the only way I can really put it. You can, you can stop using the moment so, so sort of aggressively and in that process uh, come to enjoy it some more. Now, I do also talk in the book about the importance of hobbies and why it's really great to have something in your life that you're doing just for the present moment experience. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think it, it's not... It's, uh, what do they call it in math? It's like a, it's, is it like asymptotic or something it's something you aim for that never but you never reach i, I think right um, right right approaches the axis totally wrongly um yeah. i think it's a it's a it's the right gesture it's the sequential and un endless and unfinishable letting right. loosening of a grip on something uh, whether it's possible for a human being to to not take that attitude to time at all i don't know but i know yeah. from my own life that there are times when i'm totally narrowly focused on reaching a completion state Right, and there are times when I'm kind of enjoying being in the botanical gardens with my son, even if part of me is thinking, "Okay, this is this is good parenting. It's good for his right. health in the future. Right. Good for his intellectual development." You know, yeah. Um, okay, so I, I mean, it, just to be clear, like on my end, what I thought of that is, um, I was trying to think of like what is the most desirable state of me using time, and I tried, and I thought to myself. Yeah. There are times in my life that, you know, happen now and then where I think to myself, I, there's nothing in the world I would rather be doing than this. And that can be, I mean, it could be something that I'm doing with, it could have value to me because it will have value in the future. Like for example, writing a book, like you are really enjoying doing it and it also has a future value. Um, or you could be at the Super Bowl and you think there's nowhere else on earth I would like to be like that. But as I was going through your book, I was thinking to myself like, those are the times that I tried to build towards in my in my daily life so I can have more of these kinds of moments where I ha would have the thought, there's no place I'd rather be right now. That seems mm. to be the pinnacle of it for me. Yeah, I think that's a lovely way of putting it. What it, what it makes me think of is, of course, that, um, you know, that it could be something that's building for the future. It could be something pleasant. It could be something kind of unpleasant if it felt... Mm. Um, if, and it's a way of connecting to meaningfulness, I think, as opposed to right. happiness. I mean, the thought it makes me think of immediately, uh, but there are certainly aspects like being a parent, um, which are not fun because they involve being woken from sleep at two in the morning or um, 
changing diapers. But I think it's definitely possible to have the sense there of of being where you should be, uh, yeah. and, and therefore the, the sort of why, the reason you're doing, whether that one of present moment experience or or future happiness or kind of neither, because you're sort of giving yourself to some bigger independent web of causes and effects where that's your role. I mean, right. the really interesting way of of putting it, and by the same token you know, it can feel totally wrong to be involved in something, uh, a job, uh, a relationship perhaps, when you really think deeply about it, you know, even if it's fine and fun and perfectly enjoyable on the on the surface. So yeah, I think that's a great, that's a right. great question. Great, great. Um, so Oliver, one thing you started to, um, your voice started to glitch slightly once you leaned forward. I don't know if something about you leaning back would make the, the picture clearer or something. That's strange. Anyway, okay. It was strange. The moment you leaned forward, it started to glitch slightly. Not too much, but anyway. <laughs> um, right. to seeing my face too close. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I do, before we get to all these audience questions, I just want to go through, as promised, much as I am want to explore the psychological paradoxes of uh, our relationship to time. I want to get into some more practical things, which I'm sure is a lot of the reason why some people um, would purchase this book. How do I um, improve my relationship to time and so on? So I'm going to go through three of my favorite ones, and I just want to give you a moment um, to talk about them. So um, one of them was um, sort of encapsulated in a Warren Buffett um, piece of advice. Warren Buffett, the famous American investor, um, he gave somebody some advice. He said, write down, you want to know how to spend your time? Write down the top 25 things you want to do. Then take the top five and only do those. And then one might think the next 20, like, you know, when you might spend, those might be my hobbies. But Warren Buffett, he says, the, the next 20, number six through 25 on your list of things you like to do, those are the things that you should, should avoid at all costs, because those are things that are interesting enough to you that you might be distracted by them. Um, and therefore, they would impinge upon your ability to truly do the top five that you really want to do. It seems counterintuitive at first and then kind of brilliant when you think about it. Yeah. Can, can you just unpack that a little for me? Yeah, totally. To, to any um, pedantic audience members, I do clarify in the book that this probably doesn't actually originate with Warren Buffett. Okay. Like, people just say, oh, the Buddha said, Warren Buffett Mark said. Mark Twain. They're just like wise people. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't matter for our purposes here. Uh, and I think, yeah, I, what this sort of points to, uh, I call them middling priorities, right? This idea that these things that kind of you would quite like to do, if you, but not hugely. And I think, for example, uh, most people have friendships like that, right? Where you're sort of like, they sort of, they sort of chug on and you maybe every so often sort of do something to nurture or maintain them, but they're not, if you're really honest, they're not, they're not the ones in your life that really mean the most. And I think, you know, one of the, one of the consequences of being finite humans with finite time is that um, you, you can, you, you know, you have to neglect a huge amount of the things you could in principle do millions and millions of them. And where we go wrong, I think is that um, people think that, uh, it's important to say no, it's important to, you know, la, la, la. But they think that what that means is in order to separate what really matters from what doesn't matter. So you, you've got to get better at saying no so that all the stuff that doesn't matter you can get rid of in your life and you can only spend it on the things that matter. But, of course, the real point about the world we live in and our finitude and uh, is, uh, and I quote Elizabeth Gilbert on this in the book as well, right, is that, no, you can't even do all the things that matter, right? Mm. You have to choose between things 
where you'll be neglecting things that are totally legitimate ways to spend your time. And that's what I mean by these middling priorities. It's not bad to be wanting to do something, some given project that you think that you would, you're sort of eight, 70% enthusiastic about. Um, it's just that there isn't going to be time to do that and the one that you're 100% committed to. Right. Um, so saying no is not this kind of secret. People say, oh, people think there's this back door of like, oh, I only have to say, it's about getting better at saying no to things I don't want to do. But it's actually also about saying no to things you do want to do because there's just no reason to believe that you've got enough time to do all the things that strike you as important. No, that's it's just so well said. And again, like probably my favorite single piece of advice in the book that you have to learn to say things, say no to things that you really do want to do and which are good things to do. But you have to say no to them in favor of things slightly more important. Um, another practical tip, uh, tip that I loved um, is this joy of missing out as opposed to fear of missing out. The JOMO, as I've heard it described, um, you know, you talk about the way that people become happier when they truly cut off options and sort of burn the ships at the shore. Um, can you just talk about why the, the kind of positive psychological the, the benefits of just truly saying no to something once and for all? Yeah. So the funny thing about FOMO, when you think about it, is that like we, it's often illustrated in the context of like social media, right? It's like you hear about a thousand events you'd like to right. be at, certainly right. in the COVID times, I don't know much right. for now. And it undermines your enjoyment of the one or two that you managed to get to, to know that there are all these other ones that you might be missing out on. And I think similar dynamics afflict sort of online dating and various other domains. Um, and like... What's crazy about that when you think closely is like you're afraid of missing out on things. It's like, mm -hmm. no, no, you're definitely going to miss out on a huge <laughs> You don't have to fear that. And we don't actually, we don't sort of fear things. This is a bit of a generalization, but we don't generally fear things that we know are completely inevitable. We fear things that we're sort of trying to stave off. Mm -hmm. And so it's actually very useful to realize that you're never going to stave off the fact of, of missing out on things because right. um, because missing out on almost everything is just built into the the human situation. Right. And so, yeah, I think there's lots of evidence, both from research studies, but also just from life, that, that when, you, when you make a decision irreversible, or at least relatively irreversible, like you get married to someone, you buy a house, you have a child, um, you know, there are degrees of irreversibility. Obviously, people don't have to stay married. But that level of commitment has the effect of shutting off the other options and as a result, you're not so tormented by like, should I be doing this? Should I be doing that? Mm. Um, and it's sort of, you know, it, it's actually very, people are much more satisfied that way because there's only one direction to travel. So they don't have to sort of torment themselves with, right. with the alternatives. I spent a lot of time, younger adulthood being, I think, what I would describe as a commitment phobe in relationships. I don't think it's very uncommon. Um, and the problem is like, what what is it that you think you're, getting out of that right because it's like you sort of you, what you get out of that way of being is the feeling that ultimately you're in control and that nothing you're doing mm. can sort of take you up and bear you along at like you know at beyond your own power but um it's just a sort of constant lifestyle of constantly being sort of second guessing yourself and second guessing other people and holding yourself back from actually doing things because of that right. so it doesn't really serve anyone's purposes in the end, although it's probably a built-in 
part of being in your 20s, I imagine. I'm not saying right. get over it completely. Yeah, Mark Mark Manson, um, to bring him up again, you know, speaks of that all the time. This kind of the, the exhaustion and the negative effects of having kind of unlimited options. Um, right. and, and then also I interviewed a guy named Pete Davis on this show earlier in the spring. Oh, yeah. About, yeah, he's written a whole book on commitment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. about dedicated, yeah, dedicated and how it seems countercultural to just like truly be dedicated to something. And he talks a lot about this very issue. If, if we, um, you know, on the romantic yeah. front, just quickly, like if we grew up, I'm not suggesting that everything was right about traditional cultures. Obviously, lots was wrong about uh, lots of uh, life for lots of people uh, way back. But if we all grew up on um, an island where there were like 20 members of the relevant sex yeah. for us to choose from as a relationship partner, like everyone would just pair off and they'd be fine. Like they'd basically all be happy. It's only right. because of the sort of implicit thought that there might be 10,000 more choices that we'd have to sort of sort through that, uh, right. Right. that there's torment about that. Yeah. Okay, so I wanna move uh, to audience questions. So if our producer could just throw one up. So this is from Margaret. Hi, Margaret. Um, I'd love to hear what Oliver thinks about Alan Watts teaching about productivity within a bad faith system. The latter reminds me of that. I don't quite know what this question is getting at, but I will answer what I think it's getting at or what it brings up for me, which is like, how does one think about these things we've been talking about in a social professional context where, you know, you are expected to process through your email. You do have to sort of, um, uh, spend your days on a huge amount of things that maybe don't particularly seem to you like the most important things. Um, and I think, I really hope that's something related to the question, otherwise this is going to be an irrelevant answer. But I think that the, um, I think that the, the main answer I want to give to that question, which does come up, is that, um, you know, not everyone is, if you're in a position where you're faced with impossible demands, um, not everyone is in a position to, to to sort of walk away from it. So I'm not trying to pretend that anyone who reads this book and thinks that they makes them think they don't like their job can just is in a position to leave. Right. But you are in a position to stop psychologically collaborating with those impossible demands by by imagining that one day with the right time management techniques and the right self discipline levels, you would actually manage to do the impossible. And so you know, just to give an extreme example, if you're in an absolutely terrible job that you hate and that exploits you. But you honestly think that um, in the circumstances that you're in, it's the best option open to you to fulfill goals that you want to fulfill, like supporting your family or whatever, then making that connection conscious becomes makes it meaningful, right? I don't mm. think it doesn't justify a society that makes people work in those jobs. That's mm. a separate question. But like suddenly then you've got a why for what you're doing. And I think it can't be meaningless if it has a why, even if it's even if it's actually terrible. Um, and obviously, if you do have the freedom to not be in that job anymore, this kind of thought process might lead you to, to leave. But if you don't, you can still operate from a position of seeing what the reality is and making whatever choices you do have within that within that reality. I that yeah, Oliver, I just want to make a, like a small point um, that I wasn't expecting to bring this up. But, um, you know, there's this book that in this article that uh, got a lot of traction called Bullshit Jobs. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure, yeah. right. And, and, but I've always, I mean, I was somebody who worked, uh, you know, a corporate job for many, many years. And, um, you know, I always had this feeling that even though I feel like the job that I had and I was a leader of a team of people who had such jobs that very much would be at risk of being called bullshit jobs, I, I never felt 
about it that way for the very reason that you just said, which is that I could always connect it to like my own personal need to support my family and, and kind of and, and build my own skills so I could like one day do what I want. And I just thought that like that idea of bullshit jobs was sort of it's always seemed wrong headed to me because it is as if it's more meaningful what our job means in a broader context from the right. outside than it right. is to me and my personal stakes, which are always very high. Yeah, I think this is a sort of eternal dispute between the sort of the politicization of these issues. It always is present. I think you make such a good point. And I certainly have sort of ambivalent feelings about that whole bullshit jobs idea. Um, it's open to somebody else to come along and say, like, why are you writing books aimed at individuals changing their attitude towards time when the real problem is systemic? Mm. And why are we all about trying to, to sort of accommodate ourselves to these situations? And that's a good point. But on the other hand, you know, I've got a to-do list I have to get through and uh, I'm here and here we are and you have a job or you had a job. And so I don't think there's a resolution to that. You know, right. I think that um, the sort of slightly cynical part of me wants to say, well, OK, while we're waiting for the revolution, here are some. <laughs> and it doesn't mean I reject the idea that, that there should be sort of root and branch right. social change, but uh, you've got to get through the day as well. Exactly. All right. Let's have a few more questions. We're, run, we're close to running out of time. Let's get a few more questions up here. Hold on. Our producer's looking for one. Yeah. Um, how do you find and encompass the energy? I I'm curious what that means. <laughs> Um, does that, I mean, I think that came up in the midst, uh, that came up in part of an earlier comment that you were making, but I'm trying to make sense of that comment. Does that make sense to you, that, that question? Um, um, sort of. I mean, yeah. again, I hope uh, the questioner will forgive me if I just sort of speak to some things that it raises in my mind. Um, and stop me also, Mark, if this is just off, off, uh, off topic. But um, I mean... Uh, Oh, here we go. Oh, here we go. So here she she's okay. just logged in here and all right. adjusted the question. The energy to do it all. How do you find the energy to do it all? And, you know, I, I think this is a question essentially about allocating energy. on Right. The well, I mean, you know, this is we're in this time of, you know, the, the, the this conversation around burnout has been right. you know central for, for long enough now that there are like several really good best selling books um, about it. And the sense that, you know, everyone is. Everyone, lots and lots of people, especially younger adults, I think, but lots of people are sort of reaching the limit of how much they can be expected to get through and to cram into the day. Um, and I think in some ways what I'm talking about here is about, is a point about energy. It, the, how do you find the energy to do it all? Like, well, you don't. Mm. Um, you acknowledge, first of all, that embedded in, excuse me, embedded in the quest to do it all is a kind of an impossible target because... Uh, there's so much that you could do and because um, work creates new work. So it's not that kind of a, it doesn't, doesn't work in that um, sense. And so actually I think, you know, you, by giving up that impossible fight, that is um, no problem. Vagueness is good often. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, not, I'm not opposed to vagueness. Um, the, um, by giving up that impossible fight, that's exactly how you release the energy as it were to, um, right. uh, to, uh, focus on things that count because otherwise it's all being taken climbing the infinite ladder. Um, so just on a very practical level, 
if you're not thinking that you're going to get through, if you're not under the illusion that you know, you're going to get through all your email and suddenly be the kind of person who's always on top of it, you could rearrange your day if your job gives you that flexibility. You could say, okay, first three hours of the day is something that I really care about. Two hours, hour and a half, at the end of the day, I'm just going to do as much email as I can do within that, within that time. Well, you know, if you're like me, you have my energy in the morning. Um, that way you're just going to find that that's going to be a better application of your energy. If you start in the morning saying, oh, first, I'm going to get through all the emails that I could answer before I turn to that thing, you know, you look up and it'll be half past five and you'll be right. exhausted. Right. All right, great. Let's do one more question from the audience. Um, would love to get Oliver's insight into why we feel so guilty when we allow ourselves not to run at 110%. Oh, I'm so glad we got to this. Yes, because this is an emphasis that's been really important to me, sort of almost therapeutically, of right. looking at this material. And I don't think it's, um, and we maybe haven't brought it out enough so far in the conversation, like the, the combination of various different social cultural forces and human nature and a bunch of other things, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't just cause us to want to do all this productivity, to want to become hyper-efficient in order to like have money or in order to, or even just to sort of, achieve this feeling of control over time. Why do we want to achieve this feeling of control over time? It's because for many of us anyway, you kind of don't feel like you've justified your existence on the planet unless mm. you have taken things in hand in this way. And it's very hard, I think, for people to, for all of us in the culture in which we live to sort of feel like we are enough in this existential sense. I wrote a little piece a while ago that seemed to strike a bunch of chords with people about how like we wake up as if we're in some kind of you start the morning in kind of productivity debt and you have to pay mm. it off during the day to try to get back to a zero balance you know and um obviously if you have a salary from an organization you are in a sense in a productivity debt because you owe them work for the money that they're paying you but this existential idea like why not flip it why not wake up in the morning and think like i don't have to do anything today to justify my existence and then everything i do do takes me from zero balance into credit you see, instead of just struggling mm -hmm. to get up to this, this baseline. Mm -hmm. And that's why I recommend one example of what to do there is to like keep a done list, right? Just keep a list of things that you, after you complete them, um, so that you can see like, look, I could have done nothing today. And instead I did these 15 things. Um, I hope that one of the effects of this book, um, as the effects of this working through this stuff for me was as well, is, is for people to at least contemplate the thought that they, that they might totally be justified in existing prior to any kind of productivity. And then anything they do in the nature of productive accomplishment is all, is all gravy. It's all extra. Yeah. I have to say, Oliver, like on that note, I'm so glad you brought that up. I find one of the most depressing things to do is when I have a to-do list and I've crossed everything off it. And then like, I usually, it's usually electronic, like in a word document or something. And then I delete the things that I've done. It's, it's so depressing. I, and I find it so deeply rewarding to have this like list of these things that I've done. And I just want to frame it, you know? <laughs> keep, a, keep a record. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Okay. Well, we're out of time. Um, I, Oliver, could you just hold up the book once? Um, people, we, we're putting a, uh, there it is, um, 4,000 Weeks. It's already a New York Times bestseller, um, an Insta bestseller, as we say. Um, and go ahead and buy a few more copies of it. Um, it is a wonderful, wonderful book, um, not only full of practical wisdom, but also just sort of a, it's, it's, it's so clearly written and such a kind of full of so much kind of timeless wisdom. It's sort of doing everything that a book can do in my mind. Um, Oliver, there's one last question I want to ask you, which is that 
you know, I think that there is a way in this book in one way or another that you, I, you don't so much come out and say it, but buried in there is a feeling that if, if our species had a better relationship to time, it would make life on earth more sustainable. And, and I just want you to like connect the dots for me. Tell me about how like, you know, anybody can say, well, developing more efficient solar panels or less of a dependence on fossil fuels um, or a more healthy politics would help our species last. But I want you to kind of just for a moment describe how a better relationship to time would help our species in the long run. I mean, I think that all our crises in some way, as I'm not the first to say by any means, are crises of limits, right? Crises of failing to recognize uh, and acknowledge or accept certain non-negotiable limits. Be careful not to accept lots of negotiable limits, right? And have a sort of very low ambitions for your life when you could actually do more impressive things, more more fulfilling things. But non-negotiable limits about, you know, the effects of, uh, the, the limits of our time, the limitations of our sort of stamina as individuals. And then, you know, I think the environmental crises are a crisis of limits too, right? A crisis of a uh, system that pursues growth at all costs, that doesn't have a sort of, that doesn't have a built-in idea of what, when would be enough um, in terms of the exploitation of natural resources. That is definitely subject to what I call in the book, the efficiency trap when I'm talking about email, which is this thing where, you know, energy efficient appliances, people end up using more electricity because it's cheaper to run them. So they, mm -hmm. so it sort of, it all evens out and that doesn't, doesn't help. All of these things have this kind of, yeah, there's this insatiability, which I think is pretty much in capitalism as well. And, you know, people like Wendell Berry and others have written very eloquently about how these are all sort of, these are all problems of not being able to face the idea that there might be limits that we might in certain areas of life get to a point where you're like, okay, we've got all the technological advancement we need here. We've got all the, this country, say a given country has all the wealth that it, that it needs and now needs to focus on distributing it more fairly or something. You know, there's lots of arguments here about whether economic growth is always inherently a good thing or not, but I think, you know, that's why it's all to do with wanting to sort of control reality, whether it's the reality of your schedule for the day or the reality of the planet that you live on, in, rather than sort of cooperating with the parts of that reality that you don't get to change. And so obviously we're finding out, environmentally speaking, what happens when you, when you continue without regard uh, for those limits that are there, whether you want them to be or not. Yeah, and of course, unsaid in that comment is the limit of our own mortality, which of course is in the title of your book. And I, I just love that finishing on this note of cooperating with your own mortality, cooperate, cooperating with the limits that you have in your life, and thereby leading an authentic, um, kind of more healthy, positive kind of life. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. Okay. Well, that's it, Oliver. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Um, folks, uh, the, book's, the book is uh, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. It's a great, great read. Please make an impulse buy. Um, it uh, is a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, Oliver, thanks again for coming on the show. And folks, uh, we'll see you next week uh, with Jess McHugh talking about Americanon, kind of examining American culture through 13 of our best-selling books. We'll see you then. Thanks, Oliver. Thank you for joining us. I'm Trisha Blanchett for a Mighty Blaze podcast.
My debut novel, Herrick's End, is due out May 10th, and pre-orders are available now if you want to check it out. Tune in next week for Season 5, Episode 4, featuring mystery author Wanda Morris. Until then, keep your blaze burning and your pages turning.